Well, this is a wonderful time of the year, and all of us love it, especially students who get to go home and enjoy all of the blessings of the Christmas season and the reunion with everybody that you love at your house and the friends that you've come to know through the years. We wish you a wonderful Christmas and a great, great time. I want to share with you this morning hour a little bit out of the Word of God, a perspective that I trust will not only come alongside and assist you while you're home, but even when you come back and through the rest of your life. Just a perspective of the teaching of our Lord that I think is so basic to our Christian experience. Take your Bible, if you will, and look at Matthew chapter 5. And I want to draw your attention to a familiar portion of Scripture, but one that believers need very much to understand. In Matthew chapter 5, as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, beginning in verse 13, our Lord says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, very simply, what I want to talk to you about this morning is salt and light. As believers, we are salt on the one hand and light on the other hand. Salt basically conveys a negative concept, although it has positive ramifications. Light indicates a positive purpose, but it also has some negative implications. And we'll see how that works as it unfolds in a moment. A number of years ago, I was reading an old book by a man named Beterwolf who did a lot of study in Greek mythology. And in his book, he says the story is told in Greek mythology of a goddess... And this goddess came unseen, but was always known by the blessings she left in her pathway. Trees that had been blackened by forest fires put forth new leaves whenever she passed by. In her footprints at the brookside, violets sprang up. The stagnant pool became a spring of sparkling water. The parched fields blossomed as she arose. And every hillside and every valley blushed with new life and beauty as she walked by. The mythology says that this is the beautiful prophecy of influence. But on the other hand, the Greeks also told the story of a beautiful princess who was sent as a present to a king. About her was an atmosphere that was as sweet-smelling as the garments of Aphrodite, whatever that means. She seemed as beautiful and as pure as if fresh from a bath of dew. And her breath was a sweet perfume from the richest rose. But, according to mythology, strange enough, in the atmosphere that she carried about with her was the contagion of death. From her infancy, this beautiful princess had known no food but poison. She had been reared on it and had become so permeated with it that she herself became the very essence of it. She would breathe her fragrant breath into a swarm of insects and behold, they would die at her feet. She would place the loveliest flower upon her breast and lo, it would fade and fall away. 
Into her presence came a hummingbird. It fluttered, poised a moment, shuddered, and fell in death. The poisoned princess, she was called. And everyone she influenced was blighted and cursed. And so it is, says the mythology in life. Some of us passing through the world make flowers grow and valleys green. And some of us kill everything we touch. Such is the power of influence. Influence. That's what I want to talk to you about because that's what I think Jesus is talking about when he talks of salt and light. He's talking about influence. Somebody years ago said you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether false or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? What message are you leaving with the world? Elihu Burritt years ago said, No human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness, not only of the present, but of every subsequent generation. You will leave your influence on the people around you. And because of that, they will be different people and they will influence the people around them and the world will be different. It's an incredible thing, but your fingerprints are on the world. Your fingerprints are on the lives of people around you, so are mine. And it's important for us to understand the urgency with which we approach this matter of influence. You have influence in the world. It isn't a question of, of hoping to have influence. You have it. The only question is what kind of influence do you have? Let's look at this concept of salt and light. What Jesus says here is, is simply this. You are salt and you are light. He doesn't say you are to dispense salt and shine light. He says you are salt and you are light. This is not a command. This is a fact. The saved are the salt of the earth. The saved are the light of the world. That's what we are. Salvation has transformed us. We once were a part of the decaying, putrefying carcass of the world, and now we're the salt in that world. We once were a part of the darkness. We once were darkness, and now we have become light. Now, what does this mean? Let's talk about it a little. What does it mean to say that we're salt? In what sense am I, as a believer, salt? Well, let me talk about salt for a few minutes from a biblical perspective, perhaps, at least culturally. Salt was a very precious commodity in ancient times. A very precious commodity. The Greeks called salt divine, theon. They called it divine, believing that it was a gift from the gods. The Romans, for example, <clears throat> said that salt was valuable so valuable that there was only one thing in the world as valuable as salt, and that was sunlight. Sunlight made things grow, and salt preserved the things that grew. In fact, Roman soldiers were very often paid with salt. Doesn't sound too exciting, but that was the case. It was that valuable. And if a Roman soldier was derelict in his duty, he wasn't paid because he wasn't worth his salt. That's where that expression came from. Salt was used in ancient times as a sign of friendship. Uh, if you had a meal with a man and you salted the meal, you bonded with that man. Today in the Arab world, you find that men in the Arab community still make covenants with each other by the use of salt on a meal. 
And if you salt your food in another man's presence, if you use his salt, you have bonded yourself to him and he, no matter if he were your worst enemy, is bound to be your protector and to care for you. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5 in the Old Testament, it talks about a covenant of salt. And God speaks of David being involved in a covenant of salt. Salt was used to bind people in a covenant. Two men, for example, would be making a covenant and they would take salt in front of a sort of ancient notary public who would authorize the validity of the covenant because they had salted that covenant. Salt was obviously a preservative and the implication of salting a covenant was to preserve it into continuity. We say today that somebody put something away for safekeeping, we say they salted it away. The implication being it was preserved and that's why it was used in covenants. In the Levitical law, Leviticus 2.13, when a Jew came to offer a sacrifice, it says, Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. When you brought meat and offered it on the altar, it would decay unless it was properly salted. And so that meat, because there was no refrigeration process, had to be salted and then offered to the Lord so that it wouldn't decay before the priests could eat it. That part which was for them to eat. So when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, he used a term that was very, very common and well understood in that society, something with great significance. Further, if you study the scripture, you'll find that salt was used to season food, both for men and animals, according to Isaiah 30, 24 and Job 6, 6. I find it very fascinating. Ezekiel 16, 4 says when a new baby was born, they washed the new baby with salt. And the reason they washed that newborn infant with salt was because if there was any cut or scratch or wound on that body, that salt would act as a cleansing agent on that brand new little life. Ezekiel 16 verse 4 tells us that. It could also be used in a destructive way. Back in Judges chapter 9 verses, verse 45 in that section there, Abimelech captured the city of Shechem, the area of Shechem, and he went right in when he destroyed the city and salted the place. Why? So nothing would grow. You put salt on the ground and nothing grows. Salt also in the scripture symbolizes barrenness. According to Deuteronomy 23, 29-23, it symbolizes sterility. It also symbolizes virtue. Because we are to speak, Colossians 4-6, having our conversation seasoned with what? With salt. So salt is a very, very interesting biblical commodity. Now let me pull all of that together and help you see if you can understand what Jesus meant here. When he said, you are the salt of the earth, what did he mean? Well, let's see if we can't pull it down to maybe five thoughts. The fifth one being that which is most central to his thinking. First of all, what color is salt? What color is it? It's white, pure white. And some commentators have suggested that when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he had in mind the pure white singular holiness of his people. As over against the dark, black, ugly, dirty world, here is this pure, white, glistening church, the redeemed. And perhaps he had that in mind. Perhaps he was referring to that which James calls being unspotted from the world. But I don't think that's the main idea. I believe we are to be pure and we are to be white in the middle of black. But I don't think that's the main idea of salt. Others have suggested that what Jesus had in mind is that in the way that salt flavors food, we're to flavor the world. In other words, we're to make life more, more tolerable. We're supposed to be the, the ones who make life enjoyable. 
Job 6 says, Can that which has no flavor be eaten without salt? And uh, some have assumed that the world is drab and dull and, and kind of monotonous, except for Christians who salt it and give it life and spice it up. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says that God pours out blessing on us and it spills even on the unbelievers in our family. And God wanting to pour out His grace and blessing upon us rains on us, but the unjust get the rain just as well. And so, in a sense, we are the salt of the earth in that as the objects of God's blessing, the, the folks who are around us get to enjoy that blessing as well. But I don't think that's really how the world feels. I don't think the world feels that, that life would be a bore if it weren't for Christians who really spice it up. I don't think that they think we're the party animals of the world by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, the opposite is true. Reading years ago, Swinburne, who said about Jesus, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has grown gray from thy breath. From that perspective, here is a writer who says Jesus took all the fun out of life. Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote, I might have entered the ministry if clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. I don't think the world really feels that we add to the spice of life. I was discipling a professional athlete one occasion and he was aggressive in his Christian faith and was sitting on the airplane flying to the East Coast for a game and as the coach of the team went down the aisle, saw him reading his Bible, took his fist and put it right through the Bible and sent it flying down the, the cabin of the airplane and said, I don't want to ever see you with a Bible in your hand in the presence of this team. Um, he felt constrained at one Christmas season to give a Bible to every member of the team with the team insignia embossed on the front cover in leather, which he did and instantaneously was traded to the minor leagues. I don't really think that the world feels that we are the spice of life. So I don't think that's perhaps the best way to understand that. Although, although I do think it is true that believers add a dimension of blessing to life, I don't think unbelievers can appreciate but I believe it, it is true. We do, we do, I think, um, by our very presence, tend to be a blessing to society. Thirdly, some have said, well, he means uh, be salt in the sense that you sting. You ever get salt in your wound? It stings. It has a cleansing capacity. It can be a cleansing agency, but it is very painful. And some feel that what Jesus is saying is we need to be the conscience of the world. We need to sting the world. We need to pain the world. We need to make the world hurt. We need to, to be a savor of death unto death, as Paul said it. We need to make the world feel its sin. We need to confront evil at all costs. We need to make the world feel the pain of violating the law of God. Well, maybe so, but I, I think there's a certain amount of truth in that, but I don't think that's the main idea here. Others say, no, the idea when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth is, he has in mind thirst. Do you know primarily what salt does in your body? It makes you what? Thirsty. And that's its function. Because if you're not thirsty, you don't drink. And if you don't drink, you get dehydrated. And if you get dehydrated, you don't function well. You get sick and you may die. Salt creates thirst. One writer says the primary function of salt is to create thirst. Without salt in food, there would be an improper intake of liquid. And where there is an improper intake of liquid, there would be dehydration and death or severe sickness. When you see an athlete, for example, in, a, in an athletic contest, begin to tie up and get cramps, you'll often see people say he's got to get some salt tablets. The reason you want to give him salt tablets is to create thirst. And then when he gets thirsty, he'll consume the liquid that'll deal with the problem. 
And so some say we are to make the world thirsty for God. It's a nice idea, isn't it? You know, we're to be the salt in the world that makes them thirsty for God. Because apart from, uh, apart from us, they're not even going to know they need the Lord. So we want to make them thirsty. Our Lord put us in the world, some say, to create a thirst for God in the lives of people who are dying from spiritual dehydration because they won't drink of the fountain of life who is Jesus Christ. We're to make people thirst for God. And I think we may do that. We may do all these things to some extent. But the real point is number five. And that is that salt is a preservative. You are the salt of the earth. We are in the world, now listen, by our influence to prevent corruption. To restrain wickedness. We are to be antiseptic. To preserve. The idea is as you as a believer live a holy life in the world. As you live a godly virtuous life. You halt the corruption of society. You check the rottenness of the decaying perishing society. You see salt combats decay. And in ancient times, when there was no refrigeration, salt was used to do that. You've read enough to know that there was uh, commonly, in any kind of situation where people were moving around, an army, a navy, or whatever, they would eat what we now know as beef jerky, which is salted meat. Much of their food ha had to be salted because of its decaying property. And salt then became that which acted as a preservative. And we as believers in the world act as a, as a preservative, an antiseptic to the decaying process of the rotting corpse of the world system. We retard moral degradation. Now let me put it to you simply. What do you have when the church is removed from the world? You have a time period known as what? A great what? Tribulation. And all hell breaks loose. And the demons of the pit are released and men become worse than they've ever been. And it says the restrainer is gone. That which held back sin, I believe, was the presence and power of the Spirit of God indwelling His redeemed people. And you take that out and the world becomes as bad as it can possibly be. The influence of believers in the world is a subtle, quiet, behind-the-scenes retardant for wickedness. Our presence should restrain evil, it should restrain crime, it should restrain ungodly words and ungodly deeds. To put it practically, just your presence in the midst of unbelievers ought to act as a restraining influence on the way they talk and the way they act. That's powerful influence. Powerful influence. I'll never forget playing golf with a guy one day. On the first hole he hit about two or three terrible shots. And he was profane. I mean, he was cursing and it was really pretty bad. We sat down at the second or third tee, I can't remember which, and I didn't know the guy. I just, you know, he just picked up as we went along to the course and said, I'll join you guys. And he said, by the way, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor of a church and a teacher of the Bible. And his eyes got real big and all he could think about was all the trash that had come out of his mouth on the last couple of holes. I want, to, I want you to tell you something. It was very interesting. He never said another profane word the whole day. And it ruined his golf game. He had a bad golf game to start with. But he really stunk up the course when he couldn't curse. 
Because he couldn't know what to do with his emotions. So he just got worse and worse and worse. And it was kind of curious to walk away and realize you just sort of salted the situation. Because you acted as a restrainer because of his perception. Some religious background, no doubt, that caused that to happen. We are to be a moral retardant in the world. It's a tremendous opportunity. Listen, young people, put it simply. You're not to be a part of the system. You're to be that which restrains the system. You're to be apart from the thing. Genesis chapter 18. Let me take you there for just a minute. In Genesis chapter 18, I'll read you just a few verses to illustrate this point. And you'll recognize the setting. Starting around verse 22. The men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. In other words, Abraham says, God, you can't destroy this place. There are righteous people there. Will you destroy it if there are 50 righteous people there? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? Verse 25. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, I'll spare the whole place on their account. Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Now we're down to forty-five. And he said, I'll not destroy it if I find forty-five. And he said to him again, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I'll not do it on account of the forty. And he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I won't destroy it on account of 20. And God's going along with Abraham's little deal here. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And what God said was 10 righteous people and I'll spare the city. What is the significance of that? Our presence acts as a retardant, not only against sin, but against the judgment of God. We are a preserving influence in the world. If our lives are as they ought to be. What a tremendous power we have. Young people, I believe in this community right here in which we live, we as a community of people who believe God within a community are a, a preserving influence. Now, we have to be rubbed into the world to work. Salt has to be rubbed in. It has to be dissolved. It has to be spread around. So we have to be in the world, but not of the world. You can't be a preserving influence unless you're in contact with the system, unless you're mingled in society, unless you're somehow dissolved. The whole world is like a rotting, putrefying, decaying, relentlessly deteriorating carcass. And we are those moral disinfectants. Now, you have to see yourself as that so that you understand you're not a part of the system. You're a part of the retarding of the system. That's our silent witness. The power of a godly life. The power of influence. It's a tremendous privilege we have. Silent witness. We hold back society from being as wicked as it could be because of our influence. What kind of influence are you in, in your personal relationships? What kind of influence are you in the dorm? What kind of influence are you in Newhall or Valencia or San Fernando Valley or Los Angeles? What kind of influence are you in your hometown? What kind of influence are you around your non-safe friends, around your unsafe family members? Are you a retardant to corruption or do you participate in it? If the salt loses its savor, what's it good for? Good for nothing but what? To be thrown out and trampled on. I mean, if you're not acting as a retardant to that, you're useless. 
doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means you're not any good. Salt in the Dead Sea area is mixed with gypsum. And no doubt in the biblical frame of reference, it was common to experience the fact that if salt sat around too long, that gypsum caused it to become useless. It caused it to go through a, a chemical change that made it an alkaline kind of substance that would be absolutely useless. And there are some Christians who sit so long without ever be, being the influence they ought to be that when it comes time for them to be used, they're useless. So ask yourself whether you're a, you're a retarding influence for wickedness. When you, uh, when you move out into this community or into your own home community or even around this campus, what is your influence? Do you restrain evil? Do you restrain sin? Do you restrain wickedness? When you walk into a room, does that change the tenor of conversation? Does that alter the kind of words that are being used? When somebody starts to tell a certain story and you walk up, do they stop and talk about something else? I hope. I hope so. When you come into a group of young people, uh, does that change what they decide to do that evening when they leave campus? When you say, I want to go with you, does that change the direction of what was going to go on? See, that's influence. And that's the salt that preserves. That's what we're to be. But that's, that's a negative thing in a sense of retarding. What about the positive side? Let me just briefly have you look at that. It talks about the fact that we're not only salt, we're light. We're light. Now, salt and light balance each other. Salt is hidden and salt works secretly and salt preserves. Light is not hidden. Light is visible. It works openly and it proclaims. On the one hand, salt, because it preserves, promotes righteousness. On the other hand, because light proclaims, it also reveals sin. So there's a, there's a sort of a balance there as well. But the primary concept of light that our Lord has in mind is that it reveals truth. Light in the scripture is always connected to the revelation of truth. Now listen carefully. Your life is not simply to be a matter of an influence that retards evil. You're not just salt, you're also light. On the one hand, you quietly and in a godly way influence. On another hand, you boldly proclaim. And those two have to go together. You don't want to be just salt with the subtle, quiet, nonverbal influence. As good as that is, that's out of balance. You don't want to just be light, proclaiming, proclaiming truth, announcing truth, and not living in such a way as to preserve that truth. There must be light. He says your light is to shine before men in such a way that they're going to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How are they going to do that? Because you have told them about your Father who is in heaven. You have identified who it is you serve. You have identified your God. And when they see your works, they'll glorify your God because they know He's your God because you've proclaimed that. Life then for the believer in the world has those two balancing elements. The element of influence and the element of proclamation. The element on the one hand of retarding corruption and the other hand of promoting truth. Manifesting truth in word as well as in deed. In Romans, just to show you an illustration of 
the thought of our Lord. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 19, it's interesting that the Jews thought that they were the light of the world. In fact, much of the rabbinical writing talks about the Jews being lights to the Gentiles and so forth. But in Romans 2, Paul indicts the Jews. He says um, in verse 19 to the Jews... You are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. In other words, you think you're a light. The fact is you're not. Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Instead of giving glory to God because of you, they blaspheme God because of you. Jesus Contrary to what Israel had become, wants us to be lights that cause God to be glorified. That is to say, we preach truth and we conduct ourselves in such a way that our good works support that truth. Now look at verse 15 for just a moment. Do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure? That's a certain size basket. The lamp here, Luke 9 has to do with a little terracotta thing, which is uh, clay. Uh, they put a little oil in it and just floated a little wick in it and lit it. That little lamp, symbol of light in darkness, proclaiming truth to a dark world. He says nobody lights a lamp and puts a bushel over it, a bushel basket. Nobody hides it. That's ridiculous. Why light it if you're going to hide it, right? It's like leaving the closet light on when the door is closed. Why bother? And so he is reminding us again of the same principle that we saw with the salt. What good is it if you have lost your influence? What good is it if you, knowing the truth, possessing the truth, don't let the truth shine? Then he says in verse 15, it should give light to all who are in the house. Then back in verse 14, he said, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. We are to be bold. We are to be forthright. We are to be faithful. To proclaim truth. I remember what was said of John the Baptist that he was a burning and a shining light. A burning and a shining light. All for God's glory. Young people, I believe with all my heart that this is the simplicity of how we are to perceive our Christian testimony. On the one hand, by virtue and godly living and character that exalts Christ, we have influence in society. We have influence. But secondly, by virtue of our boldness and our courage and our willingness to proclaim Christ, we proclaim the truth to those that need to hear. Now, let me tell you something very, very important. No one was ever, ever converted to Jesus Christ through your influence, apart from the light. You understand that? They can't understand the truth if they don't hear it. They can benefit from your influence, but they will never understand the truth until it's proclaimed. You are salt, you are light. Influence. Proclamation. We have a tremendous responsibility. Here in this community, back home in your community. I hope you'll go home this Christmas season just kind of refreshing the commitment of your own heart to be a godly influence. To be a godly influence. To be in your church on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, Sunday night. To be at whatever ministry opportunity you have there. To be at prayer meeting when your church gathers together to pray. 
to encourage the heart of your pastor and your church leaders, to be an influence in your family and to proclaim the truth that you believe, to be an influence among your friends. You're going to go back to some of your friends who need your influence. They also need your light. They need to hear the truth that you have come to understand. And the more we put off being faithful in this area, the more people miss the privilege of influence and truth. I'll close with this. Some time ago, I saw a magazine story that was depicted in a series of photographs that was indelibly impressed on my mind. The first large photograph was of a picture of a, a wheat field in western Kansas. If you've ever driven through western Kansas, you know you can drive for miles and miles and miles and miles and see nothing but wheat fields. From horizon to horizon in this picture was nothing but wheat. That was the first picture. The second picture was inside the farmhouse that sat in the middle of the wheat field. And inside the farmhouse was a mother. And the mother was sitting in great distress in a chair. Because she had a small little boy, about three years of age. And that little boy had wandered out of the farmhouse into the wheat field. And she couldn't find him. The wheat field was vast, mile upon mile in every direction. She couldn't find him. Her husband was there in the picture by her because he too had searched and together they couldn't find that little fella. The next picture depicted the neighbors because the neighbors had come over and they had tried to help as well. But night had come and they couldn't search because it was pitch dark. They knew the little boy was too small to see over the top of the grain and that he would never be able to find his way out. The next picture showed more people who had come in the next morning, all linking hands, walking, crisscrossing through this wheat field, trying to come across this little fellow. And the last picture showed the father standing over the dead body of the little boy who had died because of the cold of the night. And under that last picture was a caption. And the caption said, Oh God, I wish we had joined hands before. Thought about that. I wish we had joined hands before. Collectively, people, we can have a tremendous influence, can't we? If we see ourselves as a part of a, of a human chain in a sense of redeemed people that the Lord has sent into the world to have an influence, to come across the people before they perish as salt and light. May God help us to do that. Let's pray together.